Hello there. This is Pastors of the Roundtable, the discipleship podcast of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MMBC in Monroe, Michigan. We encourage thoughtful discussion about the Christian faith and connect you to the people in the ministries of MMBC. We are here today to continue while looking at Martin Luther's Heidelberg Disputation from 1518. Um, We've been walking through it slowly, trying to think about the key points that Luther was um, presenting here long ago um, about key theological issues that were on his mind, and uh, these are things that we're still debating and discussing today. Um, The same uh, topics and discussion points are still um, up for uh, debate and uh, have different perspectives on uh, even today. Um, leading up to today, we're going to be looking today at Thesis uh, tw- 19 through 21. Um, I want to read a little quote from Carl Truman, who has a book, a whole book on Martin Luther that he wrote, um, kind of summarizing where we've been so far and where we're going to be going to now. Um, uh, he says this, this brings Luther to the point where he makes the famous distinction between theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. In short, this distinction rests upon a view of salvation that assumes various truths. First, he radicalizes sin such that it is equivalent to being morally dead before God, as revealed to us by the holy law of God. Second, the will is entirely impotent for salvation. Third, the rejection of these basic truths is a moral issue that itself involves the compounding of sin and guilt before God. So, uh, Luther has been trying to argue throughout that we are dead in sin before God. We can't do anything to fix it in our own strength or of our own will. And that actually, whenever you reject those first two truths, you're actually making your guilt even worse because you're just showing forth, um, uh, the, actually the truthfulness of those, of those claims, um, and such. So today, Luther is going to get into these theses and theses 19 through 21. And these are actually very important, and they're actually going to, uh, <clears throat> some of the phrases um, are going to be um, really uh, the carried on, uh, that we're still using these these terms today. For instance, the phrase, a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross. Um, you can see these phrases even still used today, um, and the same ideas um, that Luther is, is writing about in them are really foundational for his theology and also for the Reformation's uh, theology and our, our understanding of who God is and how we're supposed to live in light of that. It's very foundational. So let me read the three theses, and then we can um, kind of flesh it out, discuss, as my dad says, cuss and discuss um, through some of these, uh, these things. Theses 19, that person is not worthy to be called a theologian who thinks the invisible things of God are observable from events which have actually happened. 20. Conversely, a person is worthy of being called a theologian who understands the visible and ordered things of God after fixing his sight on the passion and cross of Christ. 21. A theologian of glory says what evil says that evil is good and good is evil. A theologian of the cross says that a thing is what it actually is. Luther is talking about two different types of theologians. And that's one of the things Carl Truman brings up right away. You'll notice what Luther says here. 
he says that person. So he's talking about people and theologians. So whenever he's talking about in theses 19 through 20, he's first of all talking about these are the, these are two different types of people and how we come to the cross of Christ and how we look at it. So it's not abstract. It's not abstract ideas, a theology of the cross or a theology of glory. We're talking about two different types of theologians, uh, two different types of people. And when Luther is, uses the word theologian here, he's ultimately going to be describing all of us. Every single one of us are theologians in the sense that each and every one of us have ideas and try to understand who God is. We have ideas about who he is, how he's revealed himself, what his will is towards us, what we can expect from him, what kind of being he is, um, on and on and so forth. So we're all theologians. And what Luther is going to argue is that um, we are all really born as what he calls theologians of glory. And we'll talk about what that means. But whenever we become Christians and see things in the way they really are, we become theologians of the cross. Um, So that's kind of what Luther is going to do. He's talking about two different types of people, two different types of um, theologians. And so let's break this down a little bit easier to make this easier to understand. The first thing is um, a question, which is this. What Luther's trying to get at is where should we look to know God? So if you were to go to somebody on the street um, and you were to ask them, how do I know God? Where should I go to learn about God? Um, Some of them are going to say, look at nature or read books of the religious subjects. Some are going to say, well, the Bible is where I find um, the truth about God revealed. Other people are going to say maybe, um, you know, I, I look at, um, I don't know, beauty, um, the arts. I look in all these different ways and I see God in them. And uh, Luther says there's two basic ways, two different places, basically, where people go to know and to look for God. The first place is the world and how it appears to work. Um, that's what he's talking about in verse 19. He says, that person is not worthy to be called a theologian who thinks the invisible things of God, the things that we can't see, are observable from events which have actually happened. So what he's saying is this. We look at the world around us the way it is right now, and we look at it and we can see this is the way the world works. That must be how God works. And he says, this is a theologian of glory. This is what we all are by nature. We look at the world, and so we think this is the way the world works. So, for instance, in the world, we look around and we see people who work hard. And whenever they work hard, generally speaking, they get rewarded. So, therefore, we think whenever it comes to God, well, if if I work hard, I'm going to get rewarded. Or we think if I do something bad in the world, generally speaking, I get punished because that's what happens to criminals. Similarly, we think, well, that must just be the way God is too. We get punished when we do bad things. And so we look at God and we judge our relationship with God and who he is based upon the way the world works around us right now. So this is what Truman uh, writes. He says this, the world around us operates on the basis of reciprocity. Those who do good are the ones who consequently receive a reward. Those who do evil receive punishment. 
thus by identifying the world around us as providing the basic criteria for understanding the actions of God, the theologian of glory assumes that the same dynamic exists between human beings and the creator in matters of salvation. In short, if I was God to look, if it, if I was God to I look with, I think you wrote that wrong. I think I did too. I was trying to read it and figure out what it was. In short, if God was to look with kindness there upon me, then I need to do something good yeah. to earn his favor. Yeah, I typed that wrong. So, um, yes. So, thoughts. I know that's a lot of information. But I think the basic point still stands that um, this is the way, one way that people look at trying to know who God is. And they just look at the way the world is. Yeah. And they transpose that. They put that onto God. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think a common one still today is love. Right, instead, we we say God is love, thus He defines love. But people, a lot of people, will say God is love, but we're going to define love how we see it, and mm-hmm. so it it has changed over time. Um, and that's an argument for a lot of the stuff that goes on today with sexuality, uh, with gender, with different things. Is that a loving God, mm-hmm. right? Or or when you when you preach to somebody that Christ is the only way. And they might bring up some situation, you know, and say, how could God send this person to hell? You right. Know, a loving God wouldn't do that. Or even the argument against hell, right? Would yeah. Be a loving yeah. God wouldn't do that. I think they're doing what uh, is being talked about here, mm-hmm. right? They're looking yeah. at what we think love is, what we think love should be, and and then putting that on God and saying, this must be then what love is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Makes, makes me think of Psalm 115. Where it talks about gods made without hands, yeah, you end up making gods that look just like you, yeah, you know, yeah. and and but they can't use those hands or their eyes or their mouths or anything like that. You know, your god is made in your own image, basically. Mm-hmm. Which just made, what made me think about. No, that's a really good point. Um, was he uh, <clears throat> thinking about like specific people? You think when he was writing this, or I know he was fighting against Catholicism big time, but I mean, I was think there... part of that was there was the uh, tendency of um, in theology at his time to use, uh, particularly the theology of Aristotle. And one of the things Aristotle would say is, well, so right, and this works in the world, right? So if I want to become, let me ask you this, Tim, how do you become a good basketball player? You practice. You practice. You get a ball. You start dribbling. Mm-hmm. You practice shooting. So how do you become righteous? You practice. You start doing righteous deeds. So you develop the habit of being righteous by doing righteous stuff. And in this world, in certain, like with basketball, that does work in a fallen world. But you start trying to apply that to your relationship with God, and it doesn't work. You cannot develop a habit of righteousness that's true righteousness, because that's where, and that's where, right, Luther earlier was saying, um, because they're, one of the key phrases that the church was throwing around at this time was, you just do what's in you. Do the best that you can, and God will accept it. So you keep doing the best you can, and you'll develop the habits and practices of righteousness, um, and then you'll become more holy. And that's what Luther is really fighting against, I think, partially, or, or maybe even mainly, um, is that type of theology. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, you know, the phrase, oh, God will help those who help themselves. Yeah. You know, people yeah. think that's in the Bible. Uh, it's actually from the Enlightenment, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's it, it's that similar idea. Yeah. You do your best, and then God's going to, he's going to kind of come in and help you out, you know. And, yeah. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's, uh, people are looking at the world 
and or and they sometimes write even what Luther's even thinking here as well. I think are people who would still say, "Yeah, we believe in the cross," but they actually understand the Christian what they they think is the Christian message, um, but they still look at it through the lens mm-hmm. of a transaction of I do this for God, God does this for me, mm-hmm. right? It's a very transactional, conditional um, relationship with God. Uh, Luther mentions these verses uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 21, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. They're looking around the ways of the world and looking for those things. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what we look around at the world and we think is what success looks like, what power looks like, what righteousness looks like, Luther is trying to say, actually, the way God works is those things are flipped on their heads. Uh one of the things that when we look at the world, um, how does the world work? And what, what, let me ask you this, guys. What does the world look at as successful and good in the world? If you were, you know, you want to live a good, successful life, what are some characteristics or virtues that you trust in? I think there's financial security, um, a sense of happiness, uh, I mean, I definitely think it can vary from person to person, what you're talking about. Are you asking what characteristics a person needs to be successful in the world's eyes or what success looks like? It can be both. I mean, I think what are the characteristics of a successful person? Hardworking, diligent. Oh, like that stuff. Yeah. Education. Yeah. Yeah, educated. Educated. Right. Probably already having some money Mm -hmm. coming from wealthy family, good Mm -hmm. stock. Yeah. I think... um, Daniel Emery Price writes this. He says, We associate divine glory with spiritual power. And if glory means power, we will gladly become theologians of the former. Uh, He says to kill God, because he's arguing that what we all are really trying to do in our sin is to take God off his throne. We're really trying to attack God and kill God. To, to, To kill God and take his place, we must first understand him. So we look to our reason. We obsess over sovereignty, election, and why God does what he does and how he does it. Because we are unworthy theologians, we believe we are on some twisted divine Easter egg hunt. We look for knowledge of God in the powerful, beautiful, and rational things of the world. But this is the opposite of where God has said he is found. So we have a tendency to look at somebody with a lot of power or with um what we term to be beauty, what we think is beautiful. So Tim, like what you talked about, what love is, we look at our, our worldly standards of love and we think that's beautiful. That's real love. But in God's eyes, that's actually the opposite of love. And but what God calls love, we look at as hate and evil. Yeah. It's the complete opposite. Similarly, we look at something as, um, you know, power equals um, having it all together, being able to not have weaknesses, um, being able to uh, have goals, meet them all the time, climb the ladder of whatever that looks like, whatever your career is, work really hard. That's what power looks like. But in God's eyes, power looks different. 
uh, it looks like weakness because whenever we look at Jesus, uh, we're told there was he had uh, no no form of of beauty that we should esteem him, nothing that we would be attracted at. Um, and so, what Luther's trying to say is everything that we look for in this world as good and beautiful and successful is actually flipped on its head in the kingdom of Christ. So he says, instead of looking at the world and its standards for how to know God, um, the world is actually quite foolish when it does that. Instead, we're to look at the the cross. So Luther writes in, for, in Thesis 20, Conversely, a person is worthy of being called the theologian who understands the visible and ordered things of God after fixing his sight on the passion and cross of Christ. So in other words, we look at this world through the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ becomes the the ultimate filter. Um, it's kind of like, um, it's it's a filter. It's also kind of like if you go gold gold panning, right? So you get a, a pan of gold and you throw the, you get this, this mixture of gold with dirt and everything and you sift it through and you want to get to the pure gold um, to get to what is, what is really good there. Similarly, um, the truth of the cross is not simply a doctrine to believe, be believed, but it's a sifter. It's a filter to help us to actually understand this world in its real sense. And you can't understand this world if you don't understand the cross. So, for instance, the, wor- the world doesn't understand this world because they don't understand the resurrection and the death and resurrection that we need and that's coming. So they can't really even understand this world because they don't look at it through through the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are to look at the cross. Carl Truman writes this, the theologian of the cross, by contrast, draws his understanding of God from looking at how God has revealed himself in the place where God has chosen to do so. If one wishes to know how God acts, one must look to how God has revealed to us that he will act. And I thought this quote was was beautiful. He says, the fact that God humbled himself took flesh, and died a painful death via a method typically reserved for the scum of the earth is itself a powerful revelation of who God actually is and how he acts. Christ hanging on the cross is constitutive of the very identity of God toward fallen human beings. So Luther will say things like this, I don't know any other God than the one that's hanging on the tree. So Luther, and I think there's there's a lot of uh, really helpful stuff in this because this gets us away from trying to speculate too much in who God is. Why is God doing this in my life? Why is this happening to me? What is God's plan for my life? Luther would say, you don't know any of that stuff. That's all invisible secret stuff. All you know is you look to the man on the tree dying for us. And when you look there, you realize that's God. And this is who he is. And God is not found in the successes of my life. God is not found whenever um, I feel like I'm really high up on the mountaintop. Honestly, if God's there and that's who he is and that's how he's revealed himself much of the time in this world before the resurrection, I actually find God most of all in my lowest points, not in my highest points. I find him in my weakness, not in my strength. Um, So it flips your spiritual life completely upside down in the way that we judge what spirituality even looks like, I think is changed um, by, by looking at this through, through the cross. Okay. Thoughts. Yeah. I mean, the language that was used to me that I think is what's happening here is uh, worldview. 
and how how are you going to view the world through what through yeah. what lens, right? And right. as Christians, we must have a biblical worldview, or I guess kind of what we're saying here is like a across across yeah. worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we have to be careful with that because we've been we've been raised in a place that has a lot of different worldviews. There's a lot of them that come flying at us. Uh, you know, wherever our education was, whatever college we went to, our parents, uh, our friends, you know, uh, media, all these different things shape our worldview. And as Christians, we have to be careful that we make sure our, that our worldview is, is Christ centered. That is a Christ centered worldview. And, and, and what, and like we're talking about here in the, in the cross. And, uh, I think that's a difficult thing because, we since we live in this space and time we have emotions and we have feelings and it becomes easy to sympathize with other worldviews right it becomes very easy to see your neighbor's pain that our biblical worldview yeah seems to cause mm-hmm. right and so then we want to sympathize because we've taught to care we've been taught to care for other people you know, we've been taught these things and we think, so then there's this battle in our head of caring for people versus what we know the Bible teaches that what they're doing is sin or whatever. And how are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, parents have had to do this right with their kids of like, I want my kids to know I love them, but I also want them to know that what they're doing is wrong. How do I do this? How do I balance this? And um, it can be very difficult, but we have to make sure, like uh, we're talking about here, that we are centered on the Word of God and that our understanding of life is based off of what God tells us in His Word, not the not the other way around. And I remember hearing John MacArthur talk about it, and he said it, not in a pompous way, but I know it can come across that way, just of saying that as Christians, we're the ones who truly understand the world. Mm-hmm. The, rest, the rest don't, mm-hmm. uh, but we do. And so we need to act like it, right? We need to understand that. And again, we don't do it in an arrogant way. That's not how Christ handled it. That's not how we're called to do it. Uh, But we should be, if if we are the people with a better understanding of the world, then we of all people should be the ones to give grace more often, to have more understanding and compassion, uh, to be more patient with with others. Mm -hmm. Because we hopefully can see, oh, they're not coming from the right worldview. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and their and their their thinking is wrong because of that, and so trying to love them to maybe come to this other world, mm-hmm. right? To yeah. them to see it and their eyes to be open to that. So um, that that's more the language, I guess. I was more accustomed to of hearing yeah. is worldview, which I think is the same similar, yeah, similar yeah. thing that's happening here. Yeah, I was just going to say that I don't. You said they're thinking. I think probably a bigger difference would be that they're not thinking. In certain, like worldview communicates that you've actually thought about oh. what you're about what you believe, um, or the way you see the world and the reality of it. Whereas most people, I think, are probably just going by what they feel to be right. Or I think good. that's the case sometimes, but I mean, I think sometimes people really do think, but what they're thinking through is a different, a totally different worldview. You know, you have some prominent atheists who are very smart; they think a lot. But I would say their worldview is messed up of where they're coming from. They're probably much smarter than me. <laughs> I really want. Yeah, I guess I would just say that your average everyday person is is driven more by their by their feelings, how something makes them feel, versus whether or not they think it's like think through this moral argument of why this is right versus this is wrong. 
and instead just go based on no, this feels right. Do to you me. think though that they might start with the feeling, but then think through of how to justify the feeling based on the way it makes them feel? So yeah, that's that the, what I mean. The origin point is yeah. not the thinking; it's right. the feeling. Yes, the origin point would be the feeling, but then their worldview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're still going to put that through a worldview <laughs> that maybe they're constructing, even yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to claim all these people are dumb and don't think about anything i don't think that's what you're saying no right? no not dumb but but a lot of times it will be of off a basis right. of this is what i think yeah. or mm-hmm. how i feel right yeah like something yeah. that i was trying to get at was christians need to be thoughtful mm-hmm. i mean this is part of the reason why you actually need to to study and know god's word is and be thoughtful about what you believe not just go on gut instinct because I think part of what Luther's trying to get here is that your guts are wrong. Yeah. You know, you <laughs> they're going to lead you astray. That's a really good point, Scott. We need to develop a healthy suspicion of our natural human thinking mm-hmm. about these things and always go back to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So whereas like your guts might make you think this feels wrong to say this to somebody, this feels like it will hurt them. Mm-hmm. It probably will, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. You know, like, and there's, yeah. there's a myriad of situations that yeah, we could sure. provide that we're obviously like, you probably could say. be a more of a jerk than what you need to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. That's not what we're saying. Right. Um, but it's just being thoughtful. And I actually, I, I thought of that because I actually recently heard an interview with Carl Truman in it where he was discussing the difference between that word worldview and, uh, what he calls social imaginary, mm-hmm. what he got from Charles Taylor, a, um, a Canadian philosopher, of just people don't often act in terms of what they actually think about the world. They they act in terms of what they imagine to be true mm-hmm. about the world. Right. And that was a huge uh, concept in his, in his book that we did a study in, in Sunday school. It's just mm-hmm. you imagine that this is wrong because the world has told you that it's wrong. Or you imagine that it's right because the world has told you that it's right. So you just act mm-hmm. like it is without even thinking about it. Right. And that's why people... Like calling pop coke. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> no, I do bring that up on purpose because it is those. It, it, it even is exactly things good, like that where yes. you have to like think. You you when you sit there and think because people will fight about this yeah. and argue about this yeah. and you're like wait let's let's think about this you know and it's, yeah it's this is based off of where you live mm-hmm. right where you were born it's and on your social situation on your social in. Neither of us are wrong mm-hmm. necessarily here, but we're going to get mad about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, you're right. And, yeah. I think one of the things this does, too, is it helps us be reminded that our message is really the total opposite of the way the world works. Sometimes maybe we've, especially if you've grown up in Christianity uh, or heard about the crucifixion and this way of salvation, you've at least heard about it, it can be tamed down. But what Luther's trying to show here is the way the world works and what the gospel is are total opposites. Um, and sometimes we can try to make the gospel uh, more like the world, you know, and inject some some worldly elements into it. Um, it's a good reminder to us that, I mean, it is pretty crazy to build all your hope upon a guy who was crucified a couple thousand years ago and uh, who suffered the most... Um, dehumanizing death that could be uh, created at the time. I mean, that's pretty nuts. It was nuts back then, and it's helpful to be reminded that it is crazy to people to still today, as well as all the implications that means for um, for who we are, right? So one of the implications is, is 
you and I are are not able to fix ourselves, and that's a really big affront to all of us naturally. Um, if you think about it, it's kind of funny um, that uh, for us, we would typically think the way of salvation should be a slow reformation of life. So it's me putting right doing the habit thing. I I stop doing these things and I put on these other things. But actually what Luther is saying is the way of salvation is first of all by death and then by rebirth. You die with Christ and then you are raised again with him. And that's a much more radical thing. Actually, that's where eventually he's going to get to uh, when we do this next. Um, I'll just read this one little um, thing he says here. So, so also lust for knowledge is not satisfied by the acquisition of wisdom, but is that much more aroused? Um, he says, eventually, the lust cannot be cured by satisfaction, but by extinguishing it. So in other words, the only way to solve our problem and our sin problem is not by trying to change it. It's by it being extinguished. We have to die and be raised again with Christ. So sanctification in the Christian life is primarily a daily death and resurrection. It's, you can't, you can't um, argue with your lust and your sin. You can't uh, try to talk it down. You can't fight it. You are incapable of defeating it. All that can happen is for you to, by the Spirit's power again in faith in Christ, die with him and be raised again. And that's a pretty radical understanding of, of how people change um, in a spiritual sense. That's far different um, than the way we would go about this, I think, in a, in a worldly, worldly way. Uh, lastly, he says, a theologian of glory call says that evil is good and good is evil. A theologian of the cross says that a thing is what it actually is. So theologians of glory, those who judge the world um, by uh, what it looks like, they actually end up flipping things. They call things that are good evil, and they call things that are evil good. Whereas uh, one of the characteristics of a, uh, of a Christian is that they are able to begin calling things what it is. I think one of the things that happens is, is as, as you grow in grace as a Christian, you slowly begin to be more and more honest about yourself and the world. So whereas before you might say, you know, um, I really struggled with X, Y, or Z. Later on, you're starting to say, I sinned. You're, you're, you're able to be honest because you're, you're able to call a thing what it is and to be real about it, to be honest and acknowledge before God what a thing is. That is something the world struggles with. They can't do that. They can't be honest and and transparent before God. Uh, they have to try to hide in various ways. And I find that to be one of the things that as we grow in grace and as you really understand um, what Luther's talking about, what I think is a biblical and a Paul, Pauline way of understanding salvation, is that grace allows us, the more we, we understand it, the more we focus on the cross, we're able to be honest about who we are. We don't have to put on airs anymore. And I'm not saying any of us are ever perfectly there yet, but I think that is one example. We grow in humility because growing in humility means you're being honest about yourself. It also allows you to be more charitable. Um, there's a book that I want to get that I, I've, I've listened about and everything. It's called Low Anthropology. And what it's trying to argue is that having a low view of, um, 
of anthropology referring to the doctrine of man, having a low, low expectations in a sense of understanding the nature of our fallenness as sinners actually allows us to be more charitable to each other because you realize actually we're all sinners. And um, I want to get that book. Um, but I think that's kind of what he's saying here is you're a, whenever you're able to call a thing what it is, which is sin and not, not use other words, you're actually able to be more charitable and gracious with other people, not simply yourself, because you're being honest about what Jesus came to save us from. And I think that's quite helpful for our practical lives with your children, with your relationships with your spouse, with the church life, with your neighbor or across the fence. Um, just call a thing what it is. And grace allows us to be honest. Um, that is something... But if you but if you don't embrace grace or you fight against it, that's going to be more and more your tendency is going to try to make excuses for sin or excuses for suffering, right? Um, so instead of just saying, you know what, this really stinks and I don't know why it's happening. I know there's a resurrection coming, but I really don't know what God's doing here. Um, that's That's calling a thing what it is instead of coming up with some kind of explanation that you really don't know what God's doing here. That's the whole point of Job, right? You have no clue what he's actually, what he's doing here. You know, there's a resurrection coming. And remember what Job says, this is what God's told us, fear God. And, uh, and, uh, basically it's basically fear God, turn away from evil, fear God, keep his commandments kind of a thing. That's your job. The rest is above your pay grade. And I think that's kind of what Luther's getting at is whenever we're, Whenever we're theologians that are centered on the cross, the more you and I as Christians keep our gaze on Calvary, the more we're going to be able to be honest and transparent with each other and before God. So just my two cents there. Scott, Dave. That's good. I mean, I think it's interesting because the, the world we're living in today, we talked a lot about worldview, <clears throat> is, is basically calling evil good Yeah, and calling good evil. It's it's like, and so in Luther's day, obviously there is a lot of the religiosity with the Catholic Church and the corruption. Yeah. But the secular world, you know, maybe wasn't as prolific or sure. pronounced, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're we're hearing those terms, um, and so it's uh, and calling the thing what it is. You know, it's like people don't like to use even even religious people don't like to use the word sin, right? Right. Or you know, God's wrath or whatever. And it's, 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 it is what it is. You got it. You can't, you can't get around it. You have Mm -hmm. to, you have to, if you don't name something, you'll never face the reality. Correct. You got to name it before you can change. Right. Right. Scott, you were looking at your Bible. Yeah. I mean, just Romans one verse 21 says for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And, um, like being able to call a thing what it is. I think the language that, luther's using there and that that we're talking about but the whole concept of being able to call a thing what it is just sounds a lot to me like you're just willing to let god be who he is mm-hmm. and you're recognizing that you're not that mm-hmm. and in a sense you're it just means that you come to a place where you're submitting to god mm-hmm. as god yeah yeah and so you're you're not afraid to recognize what he has said in his word is true Going back to part of our conversation earlier, despite the way it makes me feel, yeah, the way I feel is not important, but the the what is said to be true mm-hmm. is what's important, you know. Mm-hmm. And I have to uh, ask him to help me yeah. change the way I feel about something mm-hmm. to recognize it to be true. And so that's just, I mean, um, yeah, 
I think that's that's part of what's there. Like you can see God, but you're not willing to submit to Him, mm-hmm. which is recognizing who He yeah. is as God. You know, just a, a life of submission to who God is. And if you submit to who God is, that means that you accept what He says about you, mm-hmm. and what He says about Himself, and what He's done for you. That's right. So that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's really good stuff. Um, looking at the cross. If you want to look at a hymn, I had printed out here. I'm not going to read it, but it's by John Newton. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it talks about looking at the cross and, and also by the gaze of looking at the cross, he eventually comes, it, it talks about the movement, uh, from, from despair as well to salvation and our pardon. And that's what happens when we look at the cross. We realize what we are, who he is, but, uh, that is one of the most wonderful things I think is to see that Carl Truman says the cross becomes constitutive of God's identity. And, I think that's helpful because as we live our Christian lives, as we walk this pilgrimage, it's going to be very easy to read or think about God in all sorts of other ways. But we really just need to keep our gaze there because that's where that's where he's revealed himself. That's where God is at on the cross and risen from the dead now. So thank you for listening to this. Hope this has been helpful. Uh, take care and God bless.